Welcome back again to Red Star Radio. Today we start off with an urgent broadcast from behind Doug Ford's Iron Curtain in <laughs> Ontario. And we are going to spend the bulk of the episode talking about the nature of the uh, the planned economy and society of the Soviet Union and how that ultimately came to a, uh, a an unfortunate and tragic conclusion. But today, or well, yesterday, uh, the Bonapartist regime of Doug Ford imposed another lockdown <laughs> on our co-host, specifically on Layla, um, because um, he was worried about the podcast getting too much traction in Canada. Um, so over to you in lockdown, uh, Ontario. Uh, how are you? How are you faring? Uh, I'm getting. I'm spiritually distraught physically isolated and emotionally extremely angry but overall i guess i'm fine um i just wanted to say really a few quick words about these ridiculous this ridiculous new wave of lockdowns so just to summarize people who are not in ontario and who may not know ontario has been in and out of lockdown since march 2020 um we have not had a single month without any restrictions at all okay so we had a winter, a very severe winter lockdown with a mandatory shelter um, or a shelter at home order. So it's technically illegal to leave your house for any non-essential reason. And you could get fined for doing so. And some people in Ontario have been fined um, for, for doing that. Um, that was in place in winter. We had a surge of cases, which went down. And now we're having a smaller surge um everyone started panicking the doctors started asking doug ford to put some more severe restrictions in place i thought it was so beyond the pale for him to do that for the government to do another severe lockdown a third one that i didn't think it was going to happen not only did it happen they also closed um the majority of schools in ontario and they imposed a mandatory shelter at home order i it's, it's i can hardly believe it I just want to say a few things. Okay, before um, you do, knows- before you do, let's just um, make it clear. What was um, the what was Ford's stated justification for doing this? Okay, so the stated justification for doing this is that ICUs are getting overloaded, and we need to shut down in order to uh, protect the ICU capacity. So the intensive care unit capacity in our hospitals. We have a public health care system in, in Ontario, yeah. in Canada. And is, any, is that actually true or is this hiding something? Okay. We are currently at 78% capacity. All right. We have 500 beds empty and fi- around 500 beds occupied for COVID out of a total of 1,800 beds. Okay. Note that for the entire pandemic, the national average of ICU admissions... Um, two total hospitalizations has been around 18%, okay? We are locking 16 million people down in Ontario because there is around 500 people in the ICU for COVID-19, all right? What's more is that you can look at the rate at which COVID-19 hospitalizations are, are going in, so the amount of uh, COVID-19 hospitalization admissions, not not to the ICU, but Uh, to the ICU and otherwise. And you can see the rate at which ICU usage is going up and down. The two are completely unrelated. All right. COVID-19 will go up and down. COVID-19 admissions will go up and up and down. ICU is following its own kind of up and down pattern. Like there's no relation. It is 
a lie. They are lying to us in our faces and claiming that ICU is driving ICU. Uh, sorry, that claiming that COVID-19 is driving ICU admissions. This is a lie. So there's the idea that they are somehow protecting the um, intensive care units. This is the same, roughly the same slogan that Boris Johnson has used in the UK. Stay home, protect the NHS. Um, the idea of them being overwhelmed is untrue. And also the idea of the, the broader uh, public hospitals being overwhelmed with case non-ICU cases is also untrue. There has not been a single time in Ontario that the hospitals have been overloaded anywhere above and beyond their historical averages. In fact, the admissions for respiratory illness, including COVID-19 this year, is below the historical average for respiratory illness in prior years. There has never been an overloading issue. We built a huge temporary hospital in Burlington, which is a suburb uh, beside Toronto. It has yet to see more than one patient. Okay? The, the, the hospital system always gets overloaded this time of year. We have two influenza surges in Canada, one that happens in the winter and one that happens in early spring. COVID-19 is following the exact same pattern. It is just a seasonal disease. If the province is unable to cope with the amount of healthcare usage that's happening, it's not because of COVID-19, it's because we don't have enough healthcare capacity and haven't had enough since at least 2004. Right, so Ford's lying, that much is clear. <laughs> but the question that we uh, that I can hear the listeners asking us is, why is Ford lying and why has he actually done this? Doug Ford is lying just like every premier in Ontario for decades, for at least a decade, is lying because they want to destroy the public health care system. They want it to get overloaded. They want to see hallway medicine. They want to see people have their expectations diminished as to how what public health care can provide them. So that people get uh, frustrated and they don't have enough care so that they can introduce a two-tiered system and destroy our public health care system. That is what they're trying to do. This is the reason for the lockdowns. They just don't want to get blamed for it. They want to scapegoat this flu-like illness that is just a bad flu, no worse than a bad flu, for the vast majority of the population, except for 2% of the population. They want to scapegoat this, um, the lack of funding to our public health care system onto this, this illness and then introduce a two-tiered system uh, when they make a situation, uh, when they construct a healthcare situation that cannot meet the needs of the of the people, and then the people think there's nowhere else to turn except for the private sector. Right. So this, if you're listening in Britain and uh, hearing uh, bells ringing in your mind, this is because all of this comes from a book that was written by a conservative minister in Margaret Thatcher's government, a guy named Oliver Letwin. Back in the early 1980s, he went on to serve in successive governments into the 90s and was a Tory frontbencher until very recently. And he wrote a whole book on how to privatise a public service. And Letwin is very clear in that book that what you do is, first of all, you have to run it down, you have to defund it, you have to increase public frustration with it, and then you have to offer a solution that involves basically the state giving a ton of money to the private sector as the only way out. And if you look at yep. the successive waves of privatisation that have been carried out, in, not just in the NHS, but across Britain, this is exactly what both 
both shades of government, Labour and Conservative, have done. And it is what the Johnson government is doing now with the NHS. And he's just brought in a whole new whole new layer of, uh, of health advisors, all of whom come from private health care in the United States. And before him, Blair and Brown were doing exactly the same. And Keir, one of Keir Starmer's key advisors is a guy with a significant interest in private health care. So if you think this is just Canada, this is completely wrong. This pandemic, fake pandemic, is being used to justify the systematic destruction of public health systems, not just in Canada, not just in the United States, but right here in Britain as well. For the Canadians who are listening to this, you need to understand that it is actually not technically illegal. It is not illegal per se for physicians to receive to practice privately. They can charge, they can opt out of the public system and start getting private fees. The reason why they don't tend to do that is because we have policies in place that disincentivize them doing so, provide a financial disincentive. And they do so by prohibiting the public purse, um, uh, prohibiting the private purse from subsidizing the private sector. So here in Canada, we still don't give private doctors money to practice privately okay so that they can not only get funding from the from the the public sector get the core of their income from the public sector but make private commissions on the side subsidized by the public by the the public sector okay this is what the current situation is so it is we're all there is very little stopping um ontario from moving into a private a two-tiered private system it is it is only the public opinion that is stopping them from doing that and so they're just trying to wear people down in order to justify introducing a two-tiered system wherein the public sector subsidizes the private purses of doctors this is what they're trying to do there's very there's there, there's very little legal um barriers for them doing that the canada the canada health act is is not enough to prohibit this from happening it is only the will of the people that have been stopping these governments and this pandemic has provided the perfect cover to wear people down to the very to the very bone by by stopping them from getting quote unquote elective procedures, cancer treatments, by canceling vital um, health services such as like breastfeeding clinics and things of that like sexual health clinics and things like that. Like it's just it's disgusting that the the leaders in our society so-called leaders in our society like doctors and scientists are not only not questioning these lockdowns for their health impacts but not questioning the political aspects of what's happening in any way at all but they're they're reinforcing they're asking for more they're asking for more and more and more the canadian medical association has started a petition to um to 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 pursue a COVID zero strategy in Canada, which would, yeah, I know, I know. It's just, it's crazy. They're just trying to destroy, they have an interest in doing that. The doctors have an interest in getting in a, 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 two-tiered, um, a two-tiered healthcare system so that they can make extra money on the side, but also get their guaranteed basic income from the public purse and the public healthcare sector. That's what they want. They have an incentive to do that and it explains everything they've done so far. They are enemies of the people. And appropriately enough 
This again, this is exactly the same what um, series of events that have happened in Britain. Um, the local practitioners in Britain, known as GPs, general practitioners who are doctors that operate locally outside of the hospital system, they were all given massive incentives by both the Labour government and then the Conservative government um, after 2010 to basically go down the route of privatising their services. And yeah. this happens time and time again. Um, it is happening right now. Layla mentioned the um, using of the COVID uh, alleged pandemic to restrict elective procedures and cancer treatments. That's exactly what's happening in Britain. So if you're looking for a motivation as to why like um, multiple billionaires with serious interests in private health to be all in favor of lockdowns and COVID re um, restrictions, well, look no further than the devastation and privatization of the public healthcare system, something that they have been after for years and which the whole COVID process has enabled them to significantly speed up. But I will ask you another question, which is, surely there's some resistance to this from um, the heroic organs of the working class, um, the trade unions and the Canadian equivalent of the Labour Party. Surely they can see the dangers in this and are vigorously opposing it. Just the opposite. They're asking for more and more. They're like, you know what? Why didn't you lock down sooner? Why aren't we locked down harder? Why aren't you closing all non-essential businesses and ending and ending? Why? Why aren't they're asking capitalists? Why aren't they ending capitalism? <laughs> when will you abolish the value form capitalism? When will you uh, abolish capitalist? yourself? Come on. <laughs> they're the trade, the teachers unions after the minister of education said that he would not be closing schools. The 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 teachers unions in Ontario in the major regions of in the major districts of Ontario lobbied the public health units to impose a school school closures unilaterally despite the minister's wishes of course only doing so because the government permits them to do so they just don't want to take the blame because it's politically it's very politically unpopular in Ontario most parents the vast majority of parents did send their kids back to school as soon as they were open and would love to have their kids back in school obviously but the trade unions, the teachers unions pushed and pushed and they got their wish. Schools are now closed. They closed them last minute, giving not even a day uh, to working parents to figure out arrangements and how to how to manage the a sudden uh, return of remote learning, quote unquote, remote learning. No one's learning anything uh, remotely um, at home. It's just it's disgusting. It is d gruesome the way in which the left has become lapdogs to the bourgeoisie. Well, like, they have been for quite some time, but I think this has made it abundantly clear. There's the trade union. I know I I am pro-union out of principle, but this will cause the teachers unions to die. This is the this is the the moment that historians will look back on, which caused their terminal decline. And it's sad to see because their death dovetails with the death of quality public education in Ontario. And I'm sad to see it, of course, but they deserve to die. They deserve it. The unions don't deserve to be around. They don't. They, they are class traitors. Well, the, it's, as we emphasized on our COVID class wars episode, the teachers unions in certainly in Britain, and I, I think this applies to other advanced capitalist nations as well, 
they were never um, ex- they were never um, the heroes of the proletariat. They were always a privileged <laughs> layer that existed um, in the upper working class and in the in the lower middle class. And they were often on the right of the union movement when it was at its most militant in Britain between the end of World War II and the middle 80s. The only reason why they're now regarded as somewhat left-wing is because they were the only ones really, them and the public sector were the only ones left standing after the private sector trade unions had been annihilated. It didn't change the class position of the, of the teachers, and it didn't change the role that they played historically within the union movement. They've revealed during the whole COVID thing that they've essentially helped to um, destroy the principle of quality secondary education um, on the basis of uh, concern over safety. Um, and it helps to usher in a uh, the dream of many um, conservative cabinet minister which is the enhancement of both private education and so-called online learning where children in reality aren't learning jack shit so they have dug their own grave and now they're hurling themselves into it yep yep they deserve it you know what they the every the the official marxist in ontario we have a lot of prominent uh, marxist intellectuals here based in toronto like Leo Panitch, for instance. Um, well, he's now passed away, but uh, Greg Albo, Sam Gindin, all of these uh, official Marxists, all of the so-called left communists in Ontario, every single Marxist-type organization has come out for the lockdowns and only demanded more and more and more, thereby supporting the government in applying these draconian restrictions on our civil liberties and rights, that do nothing at all, that only harm, and that is being used as political cover to destroy access to public goods and public services that the working classes of Canada fought for decades to to achieve. It's it's so it's comed- almost comedically like comically ironic. Like if it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny because it's just so incredible th- that like people the people who've spent their whole life reading Marx have turned against and who have spent their whole life writing so-called proletariat proletarian um, theory and supporting the proletariat have turned against them in 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 a time where it was it was really up to them to show them the truth and to show everyone what was true, what was not true. And no one was able to stand for truth and justice. No one. Except for, like, Alex here. And me. And, like, three other people. It, it's disgusting. It's really, really unjust. Yeah, and the exact same can be applied to the British left. All of it, without exception, when this started, yeah. just called for more lockdown, more and more more lockdowns and uh, more often and longer ones and harder ones and never and they kept accusing Johnson of not going far enough and now they turn around when Johnson tries to codify the powers he gave the police during the lockdowns and they suddenly object <laughs> they suddenly realize that this is a bad idea having then completely opportunistically jumped on this uh, jumped on the covid bandwagon to try and leverage it for fuck knows what 
they realise that the that the government is now intent on solidifying the powers that it has seized for itself. So every single um, so-called socialist, Marxist party in Britain, every major so-called leftist leader, without exception, failed. And every single one of them now is playing catch-up because they've realised that they basically enabled the, the most aggressive parts of British capitalism to, to hyper-exploit workers more, to accumulate more power in the hands of the bourgeois state in its stage of advanced um, uh, decay and advanced viciousness. And now they're turning around and worrying that maybe, uh, oh yeah, maybe we should conduct a, some sort of political struggle. Uh, pathetic, useless, complete abdication of leadership, completely just following along with the bourgeoisie, not worthy of existence any longer. All of them should just wither and die because they, when the test arrived that required to actually yep. use the Marxist method to analyze things. Exactly. Or they all just surrendered. Mm -hmm. They all just surrendered to yep. the bourgeois science. They all just surrendered to the experts. And that goes for yep. every single one of them, apart from the two you're now hearing on this podcast. Yeah, it, it, exactly right. They, in the moment of greatest need, they were not even to, able to do the minimum. They hid behind and the bourgeois state, basically. They did, exactly. Um, it's disgraceful that Marxists, who should be aware better than anyone of the sacrifices made by working people to, to win and protect civil liberties and rights, should find that it's acceptable to sacrifice them at a moment's notice. Just because, on the whim of the bourgeoisie, yes, we should sacrifice them. These things matter. People died to win these rights and civil liberties. For whatever they're they're worth, like people died to get them. They matter. And they should not be given up because the bourgeois state thinks that something, quote, should be done. Yeah, something should be done. Increase hospital capacity. Increase funding to healthcare services. If like, the crisis is that give bad. Give people sick mm -hmm. days. Yeah, if the crisis is that bad, why aren't you doing all those things? Like, this is such an obvious power play by the bourgeoisie it's so obvious i don't know these people are so stupid like they don't they don't think for a second why it is that doug ford voted down a motion to provide 10 mandatory sick days to the people of ontario and yet apply these acronian lockdowns like why do you think he's doing that there's a connection here it's not a coincidence that we've seen decreases in icu capacities in multiple hospitals in ontario and yet we're, we're being told that it's illegal to leave our home now. It's not a coincidence. This is all related. <laughs> oh, it's so annoying. And if you can't work out Anyways. how all of these things relate to each other, and if you're, or if you're in a political organization that can, will tell you that these things aren't related to each other, or that there's no such thing as bourgeois science, then you're in the wrong organization <laughs> and you should really leave. And all of those organizations should be uh, scooped up and shoveled into the dustbin of history where they belong. Because when something like this happens, it's a real test of one's perspectives and an ability to analyze. And most of the official Marxists in the world, in the Western world, completely failed to analyze. They, didn't do, they did one of two things. They accused the bourgeois state of not going far enough, or they um, suddenly decided that they could use this crisis to leverage some kind of class struggle 
failed on all counts. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Failed on all counts. Bunch of absolute fools. Um, Anyways, yeah. But you know what? I'm I'm really glad though that um, we uh, saw off that Soviet Union because otherwise we might live in an authoritarian <laughs> nightmare with chronic shortages of services and goods. <laughs> Yeah, good thing. There's one good thing that happened in um, in our lifetime, and that was the fall of the USSR, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm reading this now from the Socialist Workers' Party website, um, who, uh, like many idiots on the left, decided that the fall of the USSR in 1991 was, could only be a good thing for the working class. And boy, haven't we done well since. No, uh, we jest. Yeah, it- but um, the billboard of the episode today is going to be devoted towards the... Um, the decline and ultimate fall of the USSR, reasons behind it, etc. But we're going to go a little broader than that and look into the 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 positive sides of the uh, the USSR as well, which you will never see talked about by most of the left, most of the official Marxists, or certainly not in the bourgeois media. Uh, did you want to jump in and say a little bit about what we're doing as well? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's important in a time with so few victories and so much defeat it's important to regularly go back and appreciate working class, like our history, our history of victory and what working people are able to achieve when they do take power. In contrast to the awful mismanagement of society and active degradation of society by the bourgeoisie, we can see what society would look like if it was run by and for workers. Exactly. Let's start to understand what that would look like. And the USSR is is that it was it was a heroic start to what that might look like yeah uh, a, a heroic for, well second attempt if you include the paris commune uh but certainly the first time that anywhere in the world the working class actually took power and held it for many many years and a new a new form of economy and state was built that went beyond capitalism that ultimately, at the high point of the communist bloc in the 1960s, had taken almost a third of the world outside of capitalist economic relations. And if you if you think that that's not serious, then go and read the biographies and autobiographies of bourgeois politicians and leaders at the time and see how seriously they took it. The serious bourgeois thinkers understood how fatal it could be for capitalism to have a huge area areas of the world completely sealed off from capitalist exploitation that is a hugely significant event it is hugely significant that the working class managed to act to overthrow capitalism in so much of the world so and not just to capitalism but to defeat colonial empires in places like china places like vietnam to institute um systems there that again went beyond the often feudal relations that existed at the time went beyond capitalism and established new and different forms of society. These are hugely significant things which are very rarely talked about, and if they are talked about, they're done in disparaging or demonizing terms. So here we aim to uh, use the methods of Marxism to actually analyze properly those society, the society and economy of the USSR, and why it mattered and why ultimately it did fall. But... Um, should we also should we now talk about a little about um why um the USSR came about and like why um what the historical process there was to give a bit of background. Okay, so 
I think the failure to understand the USSR in a lot of writers is a failure to properly contextualize where the USSR came from. And so just to start, um, I think it's important to understand like what czarist Russia was like. A lot of people I've, I've spoken to claim that Russia was on the right track and that it would have developed fine even if it hadn't been for the revolution and therefore all the sacrifices involved in the revolution were, quote, not worth it. This is completely false. Tsarist Russia, up, up until the revolution, had completely failed to lay the groundwork for, um, a, for quick capitalist development because they had continuously failed over the previous decades to overcome, overcome the autocratic political institutions and create capitalist ones. So there was in, in, inadequate protection for private property rights. There was inadequate contract law. Tariffs and subsidies and interest rates were altered arbitrarily by the bureaucracy. It was the leaders of Tsarist Russia were too stupid to lead Russia down a successful course of modernization and had continuously failed to do so. Okay, so um, there is absolutely no evidence at all that Russia would have developed along the normal course of capitalism if it had just been left up to its own devices and its own court and just like not had a workers revolution. So completely disagree with that. When, uh, when the, uh, in and around the time the, the two first revolutions happened in 05 and then 1917, like the implements in 1900 by most Russian peasants were similar to, the, to those used by American farmers in the early 19th century so the soil was literally worked with wooden plows, okay? Land was sometimes plowed by dragging branches across it. And grain was broadcasted by hand. Like, it was so backwards. Um, almost three quarters of the population in 1913, same as um, three quarters of the population in 1913 were still peasant farmers, which had scarcely changed from 1861 when some of the bigger um, reforms had started being instituted, like the abolition of serfdom was was done in 1860. Yeah. So let. Okay. So yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so let's ju let's just we're dealing with the the myth that's put out by a lot of uh, liberal writers. Um, um, Orlando Figes was one of the the big liberal writers about the Russian Revolution in the in the 2000s, um, and he was representative of a whole trend of liberal writers who were claiming that if, if capitalism had just been allowed to develop in Russia, everything would have worked out just fine. No need for that nasty revolution. Um, but that ignores, as Leila's been saying, the actual history of capitalist development in Russia, which was incredibly stunted. Um, there were the proletariat was beginning had developed in Russia, but only in very isolated patches. Uh, the Russian bourgeoisie was far too weak to even finish off the autocracy of the Tsar. Mm -hmm. um, they couldn't even carry through a bourgeois revolution. Uh, and it, it comes back to some of the same reasons we were dealing with when we were talking about Japan, um, which is that the level of historical development in Russia got to the point where you had the, the bourgeoisie became scared too, was too weak to take on the autocracy because to do so they would have had to draw upon the forces available from the peasants and the working class and the Russian bourgeoisie was terrified of both so they end up in a situation where they're trying to barter with the autocracy to try and get more concessions to try and develop capitalism further but they can't erode the political control that the autocracy has 
Um, and even when there was a revolution in 1905, the bourgeoisie, again, was far more scared of the working class and peasantry rising up than they were of the Tsar and the, the aristocracy. So that's why you end up with this abortive mess post-1905 of, like, the Russian Duma, which uh, is dominated by liberals, and the liberals, even when they have some power, can't force the, Tsar, the Tsarism the Tsardom into doing anything that would actually develop capitalism further. So the Russian bourgeoisie, the, who are supposed the liberals sing the praises of as the supposed uh, subject of historical development, by that stage, because they were they were representing a system which in capitalism that was already running out of juice, that was they were far more terrified of the peasants and workers than they were of, of Tsardom. They were completely incapable of developing the productive forces to the point where Russia could have developed into a capitalist nation. They just couldn't. And the same was true in a lot of places. So this mm -hmm. this myth that Fiji's and other liberal historians like to throw around is bullshit. And they have to resort to sort of emotional exhortations because the, the study of the economic data, the study of the political history of the Russian bourgeoisie completely belies the line that the liberals like to put out. Yeah. And if things were looking up in Russia and if things were getting better, then explain to me why there was revolution, the revolutions of 05, 07 and 1917. Those revolutions happened because of persistent rural poverty and urban poverty. Like people don't, don't do revolutions because they think that things are gonna improve if they just stay home, Yeah. right? Like, it's such a ridiculous thesis. Anyways. Um, so just to give a couple sorry. more other statistics about life under the Tsardom. Um, in 19, uh, just before World War One, the average life expectancy was 35 years old. So yeah. just to give an indication as to uh, like, I mean, it was, it was even in Britain at the time, which was pretty poor uh, for pretty poor life expectancy for many um, working class people. It was far better than that. Uh, the the male literacy rate pre World War One was thirty seven percent. The female literacy rate pre World War One was twelve and a half percent. So the huge bulk of the population couldn't even read. There was no education system in many parts of the, the country to speak of. There was no healthcare system to speak of. People were dying of easily preventable diseases all the time. So this is a very, mm -hmm. very backward system. There's incredibly there reactionary. Like, there was like zero healthcare for a huge swath of the population. Zero. Mm. There was nothing. Like, that's... Can you even imagine that? Like It's hard to imagine to now. Their, Maybe we won't have to imagine yeah. it in a few years' time. <laughs> We're going to get to experience it firsthand. But um, also, just to say, like, then, of course, the the liberal bourgeoisie is very keen on getting involved in World War I, uh, which kills over 3 million Russians, 1.8 million military and 1.5 million civilians. And also, they can't even, the, the bourgeoisie and the Tsardom between them can't even equip the army they send off to fight the Germans. They, they have, like, at one point they were down to one rifle between seven men. They didn't even have enough boots to give to the army and when they were sending it, sending it off to the, uh, the front against the Germans. So there was men going into battle without guns and without boots. 
So that's the state of the uh, of the Russian bourgeoisie and the autocracy in 1914 on the eve of World War One. They send an army off to battle with a huge number of men in it, but they can't equip them. They can't even uh, do the things that like the capitalist states did, which is at least put shoes on the feet of the men they sent off to die. Yeah. Um, so I think kind of to further contextualize uh, Russia at the t like around the same time the most um the similarly backwards countries like Latin America and South Asia um so if we look at the way in which those countries developed and they did not have a workers revolution at the same time right like when you look at where they were at in 91 versus Russia uh, the USSR was at in 91 USSR was doing way, way better. And they started at the same place. The only difference, of course, was a successful workers' revolution, which was able to push uh, Russia's development way beyond what could have been achieved if it had just followed the imperial growth pa performance that had been going on since, like, the 1800s. So, like, um, there's a great book that I recommend everyone read from, from first page to last page, called Farm to Factory by Robert Allen. And he does a, a lot of statistical analysis and historical analysis. And he shows that if the USS, the Russia had just continued with the growth pattern it had achieved under imperial rule, um, it would have reached a GDP per head of $5,358 in 1989, which is much less than the $7,070 per head that was achieved by the Soviets. But, and so like, some people would say, well, maybe though, maybe it would have um, achieved, like, they, without giving clear reasons, they, they just say, well, perhaps Russia would have achieved um, capitalist development like we saw in Germany and other places. But that begs the question, right? Because um, why then were other poor countries not able to achieve that? Like Haiti, for instance, or like Brazil, right? Like why, why that begs the question, okay? So there is zero evidence at all that Russia would have reached the level of development that it has and did without the workers' revolution. I think that this is the key thing that allowed it to happen. Yeah, and it's worth emphasizing this is also true of other countries that went through a workers' and peasants' revolution, such as um, China or Vietnam later on. Um, the, the previously existing feudal ruling class and sort of uh, nascent bourgeoisie were again as we as a, we were saying about russia completely incapable of developing the country because even in a, a countries where the bourgeois revolution got kind of played out in different ways like in germany or in um even in a country like italy which was relatively stunted in its bourgeois revolution but germany in particular um they did have um uh, bourgeois revolution of 1848 they'd already kind of broken the feudal property relations to a degree by the napoleonic op occupation um of the of the area that is now germany so they'd gone through multiple revolutions to reach the point where the bourgeoisie were firmly in power and the aristocracy was playing a subservient role to that this never happened in a lot of these other countries and with with also you get in places like russia you got kiss capitalism was imported into russia um often via um loans and um development from 
capital existing capitalist powers like Germany Imperial Germany was a huge investor in pre-World War One Russia as was France as was Britain so you get the situation where Lenin and Trotsky both called Russia pre-19 pre-1914 a country that was both an imperialist power in terms of what it aimed to do but it was also a semi-colonized power because it was domi- its economy was dominated by foreign capital and this is true of a lot of other nations as well where the economy is dominated by foreign capital they are not there to aid the de- peaceful development of a country they are there to get what they can out of it to exploit and to loot out of it which is again the miserable fate of a lot of countries in southern and central america because the bourgeoisies there always have always been too weak to develop capitalism and therefore they go from being basically slaves and stooges of the the spanish to being stooges of the americans inside a hundred years so this without that workers revolution without that throwing out of the old bourgeoisie the destruction of the hold over the country that the imperialists had then there would have been nowhere near the um, ability to develop that the workers revolution gave to the soviet union in its earliest stages yeah okay so then we want to talk about what the ussr actually was able to achieve over its course and what perhaps stalin in particular was able to achieve because the ussr's growth was fastest under stalin um and then we can talk about what what our personal favorites uh, accomplishments of the ussr because there's now, so this many is the positive so bit i just of thought it would be good to so. <laughs> There's just so many amazing heroic accomplishments of the USSR. It, we would just spend a whole episode going through them. So I just thought we could talk about the one that our our, our top fave. <laughs> um, so yeah, so like Stalin with his five year plans. So obviously Stalin was imperfect. Obviously no one's gonna no one here is gonna say that Stalin was perfect. But we're I not think here to he make sense. a lot of credit. We're not here to make saints. Uh, I, but he does a lot of credit for quickly growing, industrializing the USSR over the course of his around five-decade um, rule. And um, he was able to grow GDP per head at a faster rate than any non-OECD country, excluding South Korea and Taiwan, who led the so-called Asian, um, East Asian miracle. So Russia was, or the USSR was trailing Japan in its rate of growth. That's how fast he was able to do it. Um, the GDP per head was 79% higher in 1937 than it had been in 1928. Incredible. And he was able to do so without any colonialism and no child labor. And while providing vacation time and all these other benefits to the working class. So it, like, people should read more about Stalin and, like, not just take in all the negative propaganda around him. He really was able to achieve a lot. And I think also it's important to note that this was done consciously by Stalin. Stalin wanted to develop the country in such a way as to um, to increase heavy industry and to increase the productive forces of the USSR while also increasing consumption. He did so on the basis of a, a economic model by um, a Marxist economist called Feldman, which and this was pursued and agreed upon by Stalin. Right. He wasn't like looking to starve the population in order to build up the productive forces. That was not his explicit approach. He explicitly wanted to do both at the same time. And the model he was following um, showed that it was possible based on Marxian economics. 
So I just want to read a quote by Isaac Dorscher, who was a Marxist, um, Polish Marxist writer and journalist, a big Trotsky fan, by the way. He wrote um, biographies of both Trotsky and Stalin. But here's what he had to say about Stalin. After three decades, the face of the Soviet Union has been completely transformed. What's essential to Stalin, Stalinism's historical actions is this. It found a Russia that worked the land with wooden plows and left it as the owner of the atomic bomb. It elevated Russia to the rank of the second industrial power in the world, and it's not merely a question of material progress and organization. A similar result could not have been achieved without a great cultural revolution in which an entire country has been sent to school to receive an extensive education. That's, that's it. <laughs> um, worth saying, yeah, Isaac Deutscher wrote biographies of both uh, Trotsky and Stalin. So, um, you know, he's not dealing with somebody who's just um, a, a sort of ideological stooge for either man there. And it's worth emphasizing as well that the, the reason why, one of the reasons, key reasons why that um, the Soviet leadership had to and knew they had to uh, rapidly industrialize the country was because unless they unless they did do that, there was the severe risk that the imperialists' countries, as they had done in the early 1920s, would have just invaded again and tried to roll over the country uh, and restore capitalism by force. They were too divided and weak to do so in the early 1920s, but they did know. Everybody knew that another renewal of the imperialist war was coming, and that the the attention of the imperialists, most likely the uh, the German imperialists, would turn again towards them trying to conquer huge areas of what was at the time the Soviet Union. So Stalin, to his credit, understood that unless they went through this period of hyper-industrialization, there would be no Soviet Union left if unless they did that. And the fact that they advanced so far and so fast is not only a tribute to the fact that they were doing so on the basis of actual economic planning, coherent, uh, coherent degree of economic planning, unlike the more vague system of economic development that the uh, capitalist nations went through um, a conscious planning system enabled them to rapidly advance but also the fact is that the the working class of the soviet union itself um, was heavily invested in and bought into this ideal of rapid advancement of the productive forces and without that again that w that revolutionary enthusiasm for the for the progress that was made, that wouldn't the the progress wouldn't have been possible. So, this is a huge achievement by anybody's standards to get to the point where they could match up to or hoped come close to matching up to the advanced capitalist powers. By the time World War Two comes around, is a huge achievement by any standards, and should be recognised as such. And it is only because they made such rapidly rapid advance, advancements in economy that they were able to survive the onslaught of the Nazis in World War II. Without that industrial advancement over the prior 10 years, without the two five-year plans succeeding in as much as they did, then it would, Hitler would have been right, which is he's, his quote always was, the um, don't, cut the, don't cut that and put it into the context. Um, Hitler's quote always was, if you kick in the door, then the whole rotten structure will fall down about the Soviet Union. Mm. But he was mm. proven to be high on his own supply there. And because the Soviet Union had advanced um, its economy and 
pro uh, techniques of production as far as it did, they were able to move and rebuild an entire industrial base beyond the range of the German Air Force beyond, in, behind the Ural Mountains when they lost so much of um, Soviet territory in, early in 1941. They're able to rebuild an entire new industrial base, supply an entire new army, and then crush the Nazis completely. Uh, even Churchill admitted that without the um, the role of the Soviet Union, World War II would have gone on a lot longer. It was the Soviet armies that crushed the Nazis completely. Yeah, they so held they held the Eastern Front. They well, held it. Destroyed the Nazis ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> there was. Um, if you look at the, and also just the sheer number of um, German troops and uh, their allies that died in the Eastern Front, like millions upon millions, whereas in comparison um, to what happened on the Western Front, British and American casualties in World War II, while substantial, were very light compared to what happened in the USSR. Something between 20 mm -hmm. and 25 yep. million casualties inflicted by the Nazis in the East, and the USSR still won. So they that that's an indication as to how far they'd come. Given and also compare directly the performance with the Red Army between forty-one and forty-five, with the performance of the Tsar's army between fourteen and seventeen. It's completely different to the point where the Red Army marches all the way to Berlin, and sadly didn't get to hit, kill Hitler directly, but the the the, the bastard offed himself. So the the comparison you can make directly there is incredibly favorable towards the economic development pursued by the USSR, an economic development made possible by a working class revolution. Yeah, so what's your favorite part of the USSR, or what's your favorite achievement from, from the glorious workers' revolution? Well, I'm, I'm going to go with, um, <laughs> um, for this one, sounds like a game show, um, but I'm gonna go with um, the elimination of um, the elimination of illiteracy inside 30 years. Yeah. Uh, given the <laughs> given the state of play before the revolution, and given the the fact that it took the the elimination of illiteracy in Britain took over a century. I mean, we didn't yeah. really eliminate it until like the 40s and 50s. The USSR did it inside 30 years, and yeah. the the importance of that isn't just in sort of a stat. It's the um, it's the basis for building uh, working class power because I mean, if the working class's educational level isn't raised to the point where they can successfully administer society, then you're not going to be able to build anything. So that's why the uh, Bolshevik leaders attach so much importance to raising the educational and cultural level of the working class because they wanted to build a class that could actually manage and run society. So that would be the one I'd choose. Uh, what's yours? What's your fave? Uh, well, just to add to what you chose, um, which is probably a little bit more serious than mine, but um, I think it's people don't know that Stalin not only educated uh, and raised literacy rate to like uh, close to 100 um, percent over the course of 30 years only, but he did so in the native languages of the many non-Russian ethnic groups um, in the Soviet Union. So only 52 percent of people in the Soviet Union were actually ethnic Russians. And uh, in Russia, people were taught in their native languages. Like six, there, there was um, a massive publishing industry in the USSR, and textbooks were published in over sixty-seven languages. And um, you could get educated for at least one year um, in every level of education in your native language. That's that's really like compare that to the residential school system in the United States and Canada. 
how we treated our indigenous peoples here instead and, and tried to destroy their languages and their cultures. That's not what happened in the USSR. The opposite happened. There was this um, amazing production of cultural production of like newspapers, magazines, movies, operas, orchestras, pop and music um, in people's native languages. And that allowed them to thrive and survive and um you know, when when the USSR was was abolished, um, these these peoples were still were still in place. Like they, the languages were still there. They had actually a lot of them had to have their um, alphabets um, recreated because they were insufficient to meet the needs of um, like to to uh, to to be used by a mass population of people because of their arist- aristocratic um, origins. So that's that's one other really impressive aspect I think of the literacy of the USSR, which doesn't really get a lot of attention. But um, yeah, mine is, of course, the... So very early on, after the revolution in 1918, um, there was a decree passed that all workers must be given a minimum of two weeks off after only six months of work. And this was in addition to the many state-mandated holidays. So Soviet citizens had access to 28 paid vacation uh, days a year um, after only six months of work. Um, and there was like free and low cost like rest homes that they could access so they could travel around the enormous geographical region of the Soviet Union and enjoy these free access to free vacation homes. And these were very accessible, like average people use them all the time. Um, and so while, yes, you were not allowed to travel outside of the USSR, that um, it did have a lot to choose from, though. Exactly. Like uh, you could travel extensively across the enormous, like what was essentially half of the world. So compare that to nowadays, people don't have, now number one, don't have time to take off, but they don't have the money to go anywhere either. So sure, we have the freedom on paper, but what what good is it? <laughs> well, you can't do it. You so, can enjoy yeah. a theoretical holiday to Brazil. Yeah, you can enjoy the the advertisements for vacations. That you can't and afford. Resorts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's also worth emphasizing that the um, the extensive development of like working class tourism in the USSR doesn't did not have an equivalent here in Britain for a long, long time. Like even when uh, my parents' generation was growing up, you got like um, you got like a week um, to go away, um, yeah. and it was you would go to like one of a couple of seaside resorts, all of which, of course, you had to pay um, substantially for. Yes, tourism did eventually get uh, to be more available in time, but the USSR got there way before the capitalist nations did, and in a way that favoured working-class leisure far more than we ever did here. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't, like, have to work years and years before they get, like, two weeks. (laughs) There's just no comparison. Um and this is something that the oppressed classes never had access to um, in most of the nations that were liberated by the USSR. Never had access to paid time off work. They were always expected to be like either dying of hunger or working, right? Like, it, <laughs> like it, it's, it's an incredible leap um, to go from that state to one where you can go for free or at very low cost, enjoy a beautiful resort during your paid time off. Like that's and access to culture in your own native language for the first time. Like peasants never had access to newspapers and magazines in their own native language. But when the USSR came, they suddenly had access to all that stuff, to culture, to human development, to be treated like a human being for the first time in centuries, ever. 
That was that was the situation of the press classes in the USSR. Please. 